the fastest it was the fastest unload I've ever witnessed and um, we're probably going to start a moving crew so that's uh, whether you know it or not we're going to all assemble together and just start moving people today we'll be in John chapter 8 now coming shortly is the type of holiday in which we as Americans express overall one word freedom that is one word that as Americans we shout all the more and all the more loudly, right? It's almost as if American is saying freedom as it is saying American pie. Those things just go together, or apple pie, however you want to say it. Those things just go together, hand in hand. Us as Christians, though, we can see with a new eyes that there's a difference between being physically free and being spiritually free. Because you can be physically free, but not be spiritually free. You can be physically free, but not be spiritually free. And there are all kinds of people that are physically free, but are not spiritually free. And in the context of the passage that we're looking at this morning is no different. Jesus encountered all kinds of people that while they felt as though they were physically free, spiritually they weren't. Even though, to a certain degree, they were not. They were in bondage to the Romans. They had very little freedom. And sometimes as Christians, we also have very little freedom. It almost seems as though sometimes to some degree you can say whatever you want as long as it doesn't entail uh, an ounce of morality or an ounce of, of Christianity. Persecution is encircled all around us. John chapter 8. We'll start in verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father and do, and you do what you have heard from your father. Now, in the context, in the background, what's going on is they're actually celebrating a festival. If you actually read Jewish history, you see that they have a lot of festivals. They have a lot of, they like to party in a sense. They have a lot of parties, in a, in, but some of them are very inconvenient. Like this one, that the context is of the Feast of Booths. So they were to celebrate the freedom that they had from their Egyptian taskmasters, but they had to have this indwelling of tents and booths. So I don't know if you're like me, but I do not like camping. I despise it. The only thing I really like about camping is maybe s'mores or the fire, you know, gathering a bonfire and stuff like that. I think it's extremely inconvenient. You know, it's like, hey, we have this comfortable house with AC. Let's go out and, you know, let's live in a tent and let's dig holes in the ground and let's, you know, find sticks and try and, you know, I don't know. It's just like, it's kind of going back a few centuries. But if that's your way of receiving fun, then all the more power to you. But I just don't like getting mosquito bites. And, you know, that's just not my style of fun, I guess. I kind of like AC for some things. Maybe I'm spoiled. I don't know. 
In this context, they were to inconvenience themselves by kind of going back a little bit to remember what their forefathers had experienced. So after they received this freedom of going, getting away from their Egyptian taskmasters, there's kind of this aspect of they're kind of like, well, what do we do now? Moses promised us through God a great land of freedom, that the promised land is going to be great and terrific. But right now we're kind of just dwelling in tents. This is kind of all we have. Imagine camping for all of your life, even being born into camping and just traveling around. This is what these people have experienced. But they had a festival, the Feast of Booths, that way you could be reminded of the fact. Isn't that interesting? They kind of have some, some celebrations that almost inconvenience, them, inconvenience themselves, so that way they can be reminded of what others have gone before them. And they have the great privilege that they have now. Sometimes for us, it's kind of hard for us to get that aspect because holidays for us is all about comfort and ease and just as much as we can get by with you know as very little effort as possible for them they made some some holidays to actually inconvenience themselves to remind themselves of a greater truth so here they are in the freedom and then they remind themselves of what their forefathers have gone through and jesus tells them because remember this holiday is all about the freedom that they've experienced even though technically they were in bondage to the Romans, but the Romans allowed them to do some things. They could do some of, they can meet in their synagogues and they can worship, but they were very limited in their freedom. I mean, they weren't in chains like with the Egyptian taskmasters, but they still had some level of freedom. But they were to celebrate being rescued, redeemed from their Egyptian taskmasters. They were being reminded of the fact that they no longer have to go back to that. And Jesus gets up to these same people that are celebrating a holiday that's all about freedom, all about deliverance, all about redemption. And he gets up and he tells them, you are enslaved. That's hard. That'd be uncomfortable. You know, sometimes I think what the disciples must be thinking in their mind when Jesus gets up and tells some some of these things. I mean, he just gets up in the midst of this festival and tells them that they are enslaved spiritually. And they get up and they say, we have never been enslaved to anyone. You want to talk about a statement that is not true? Right. We want to talk about exaggeration. This holiday that they're celebrating is all about the fact that they have been delivered after being enslaved. And in fact, right now, there's probably Roman guards that's in the midst of them watching out what everything that they say and do. And they get up and they say, we've never been enslaved to anyone. That's never happened to us before. We are of our father, Abraham. And Jesus, later on in the same chapter, he says, you're actually of your father, the devil. Try feeling not uncomfortable after that for you if you're his disciples. Like, oh man, he just said that they're actually worshiping Satan. Jesus gets up and he tells these people that they have been enslaved spiritually. But he tells them, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples. It's that easy. It's that simplistic. Some of them said that they have believed, but they were contradicting what they said with their words. They only wanted a part-time Jesus. Now, in that culture, the educational system was a little different. So if you wanted to partake of higher education, you would actually go out and pursue a rabbi, a local teacher, a local Jewish teacher of the law. And you would sit under their teaching. 
You would pick a rabbi and you say, Rabbi so-and-so, I want to sit under you. I want to learn as much as I can from you. And then the rabbi would usually give you some tests and, and some thought, and they would give you some Q&A, a Q&A session of the Torah, of the law. And whether, depending upon that level of credentials, you would be accepted into their school. But it isn't like a part-time thing. So this isn't you go to their synagogue and then you hear them lecture for a little while and then you go home and then you just go on with the rest of life. This is everything. A disciple follows the rabbi everywhere. A disciple follows the rabbi to their home, eats and drinks and everything. They go out and they travel and then the disciple goes with them. I mean, there's certain periods in which they go back to their family. I mean, they weren't with them all the time, but for the most part, most of the seasons were spent living under the rabbi's teaching. So the main goal wasn't that you just learned everything that the rabbi had to teach you. It was that you wanted to become just like your rabbi. The Jewish law was not just satisfied in the fact of you just saying everything that your rabbi said, thinking everything that your rabbi thought, It was the fact that you were wanting to become just like your rabbi. You were wanting to become just like your teacher. You ever have that teacher in school that you just want to mimic everything that they do because you love them so much? Because you appreciated everything that they've done for you. But, much like today, sometimes we only want to go part-time. We only want to be have a a half foot into the discipleship program of Jesus Christ and half foot into the world. We want to separate. We want to just do as much as we can as far as doing worldly things, but yet have very little of Jesus and being his disciple. Sometimes we kind of like to split it up and do whatever we can. And then we're like, well, you know, I know Jesus says to give my whole life, but I'm just going to give bits and pieces. I'm just only going to give parts. But Jesus doesn't call us to give bits and pieces. He doesn't call us to give parts. He calls us to give our all, our whole self. So Jesus tells them and tells us, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, remember I I mentioned culturally, you would go up to your rabbi your desired aspiring rabbi, and you would want to know everything that that rabbi had to teach you. Notice that Jesus did a little bit different, right? What did Jesus do? He actually went and he called his disciples. That was radically different from anything that anybody had ever done. He actually went to his disciples. Remember Matthew? Sent into the tax booth. He's a tax collector. He comes up to him, and he says, follow me. And he does it. Now, I don't have much time to get into just Matthew's life here, but you know how radical that is, considering... Now, the others were fishermen, and in that, in that time, you could go in and out of being a fisherman. You could, you, could, you, know, you could set it down for a little while, go with Jesus. If this Jesus thing doesn't work out, you could go back to fishing. Being a tax collector, you could not go back to that. You get up from your tax booth, Rome says you're done. They said someone else in your tax booth. You can't go back to that. And in that time, that is very lucrative as well. Matthew was not shy of money. Matthew had all the earthly resources that he could have ever wanted. But Matthew gets up after Jesus calls him, and he goes and he follows Jesus. That's amazing to me. 
that he just gets up and follows him. Matthew chapter 8. We're going to look at this discipleship that Jesus calls. Because he has some people that aren't quite wanting to be as committed as others. So this is right after he's healing many diseases. I mean, who wouldn't want to follow that? He's healed leprosy, all kinds of diseases that you could ever imagine. Matthew chapter 8, verse 18. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, so this is after the big crowd of all the healings, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to Jesus, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Most of us would be really excited about that and instantly flip a switch and be like, all right, let's just go. Jesus prods the man a little bit. And he says to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. His discipleship program is hard. Because it costs all of our life. But there's great reward at the end. For these people, they wanted just a part time. They wanted it just momentarily. And Jesus knows that his audience in Matthew or in John chapter 8 is the exact same. They see all the miracles that Jesus is doing. And they only want the benefit, but they don't want the perseverance. They only want the blessing, but they don't want the steadfastness that only comes in the blessing. Jesus tells us that we have abide in his word. We are truly his disciples. Now, in the world, there is no middle ground. So, scripturally, you are either in darkness or you are in light. You're either a child of God or a child of Satan. You're either of the kingdom of light or of the kingdom of darkness. There is no middle ground. There is no person that's kind of halfway in between. You know, I'm half Christian, but I'm half something else. I'm half light. I'm half darkness. The Bible condemns that. The Bible says that there is no halfway. We're either of the light or we're either of the darkness. In Ephesians, it says, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, tells us about those who are lost, those who do not know the gospel, Ephesians 4, 17 and 18. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So Gentiles referring to those without God in that context. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Almost as if they shut their eyes to the truth. Their hearts are darkened in understanding. Now, in the contrast between being a Christian, those who know Christ and those who don't know Christ, those who are in light, those who are in darkness, sometimes Christians can get the mindset of a slave mindset. Sometimes Christians, we can still fall into that slavery mindset of still being enslaved to the ways of our past. We could say things like, if we fall into sin, or if we have habitual sins, we just say things like, well, this is just simply the way that I am. It's just simply the way it is. Not realizing that there actually is freedom. Jesus tells us 
that we are free just as much as he tells the world to call them to freedom. Because we think that these verses only refer to those who aren't Christians. Like, yeah, you sinners, you better be free in Jesus. But it also refers to us. That Jesus calls us from our sin. Jesus calls us out of our slavery of sins that we can fall into. And calls us to freedom. Because we can make all kinds of excuses. This is just simply the way I am. The devil made me do it. Or one of the main ones that I always hear is, well, Satan's just attacking me. <coughs> well, Satan didn't cause you to sin. You're the one that chose to sin. And when we stand before the throne and we are judged, is God going to bring Satan into the courtroom and be like, yeah, I'm judging you for all the sins that he committed? We can fall into that same type of mindset. If God wanted, and I've actually heard this, if God wanted me to be holy, he would just simply make me holy. If God really wanted me to be holy, he would just make me holy without any effort on my part. What's well, a two-way street? God is not a puppet master. He's not going to control you, pull your strings. The Bible says that he calls us unto sanctification, that he calls us unto holiness, that he calls us unto freedom. And the more we think in our minds that, well, we you know, stumble in this sin or this sin, and then we just simply think, well, that's just simply the way it is. We don't realize that we're enabling ourselves all the more to fall into slavery. And all the while, Jesus is calling us out. And he says, that mindset, I can free you from that mindset. I can free you from that slavery. Charles Spurgeon used to say, that Jesus is more desiring of us and our freedom than we are than to be freed. Jesus wants us more in our own freedom than sometimes we realize we even want it ourselves. Now in light of the context of this passage, remember they came out of Egypt. It was a hard time. Numbers 11, which is a passage we'll look at. In Numbers 11, sometimes you read some of the events of these people and you can get frustrated, right? God just delivered them from great slavery and they go through this and all they are is whiners and complainers. And I'll tell you this, God never blesses whining and complaining. I've experienced it time and time and time again. God never blesses whining and complaining. He blesses steadfastness. He blesses perseverance. And he blesses stick to That is always his method. But these people were so filled with whining and complaining. Moses led us out here to die. Moses led us out here to do this. Why didn't we do it this way? Numbers 11, verse 4. Now, the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. So right now, their stomachs are growling. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. So God had given them manna, but that wasn't quite enough. Their taste buds wanted a little bit more flavor. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. I've never craved leeks, so I don't know what that's like, but they really craved it. 
But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Imagine that. They're ungrateful of the fact that God has rained down bread from heaven. They're ungrateful. And sometimes I think to myself, man, these people are so ungrateful. They're so whiny and complaining. But then I look at myself and say, how many times am I also like that? When God opens up amazing doors and I'm just so easy to just whine and complain about it. The most part, the thing that I really want us to pay attention to is how slavery, spiritual slavery, can make us not realize things that are really there and make our past life of sin look all the more glorious, even though it's foolishness. They make this note in verse 5. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. Let me ask you, did the fish cost anything? Absolutely it did. It cost them their lives. It cost them their freedom. They were beaten the back because they didn't make enough stones. Make more bricks. Take away straw. Do this. Do that. That fish was not free. But they look back at it and they say it cost us nothing. Oh, man. It cost them everything. And sometimes in our own Christian lives, we look back and we reminisce on the good old times. And we think, man, you remember that time? Remember that time? Sometimes I hear the way Christians talk about their past life. And I'm like, it's like they're glorying in it. They're rejoicing. In it. And sometimes we even do that in testimonies. I used to be a part of this men's recovery program. And we would have uh, the men come up and share testimonies. And it was usually several at a time. The thing that amazed me was it was almost kind of like a showmanship. With some things, you know, one man would share one testimony and the other one like, oh, yeah, well, I did that times 10 worse. And then they'd go to the next one and, man, he's really hyped up everything. I'm like, you don't have to do that because salvation is always a miracle. Salvation, whether you, you've gone from darkness to light, that is always a miracle. You don't have to make up stuff for your testimony to seem grand and glorious. Every testimony here this morning is grand and glorious if you have been saved miraculously by the blood of christ what more do you need Amen. don't have to make up stuff for your testimony Amen. now jesus gives us the recipe for freedom he tells us if you abide in my word you are truly my disciples the recipe is obedience Simple as that. Read his word and obey what it says. And we are free. In Jesus, of course, we are free. I'm not preaching perfectionism. I'm not preaching that we earn our salvation. We're only saved by grace. But God blesses obedience. God blesses obedience. And this may be at the risk of sounding reductionistic. But reading his word and obeying what it says would solve so many of our problems. It would solve so many of our heartaches. It would solve so many of our pains. And it would get us through some of those heartaches and pains and trials that we're currently going through. James makes an interesting statement of rejoice at times of testing. That's interesting to me. That isn't my first instinct when I think to when I'm going through a trial is to rejoice. 
But James says do so because you're building character, endurance, long-suffering, steadfastness. Now for them, they remembered Egypt and they wanted it back. For us, sometimes in our own minds, when we destroy Egypt, the ruins can still be there. We have to bury those ruins. We have to see all the more that Christ is glorious or else we will not be willing to flee from sin. If we think that sin is all the more better, Jesus is not going to outweigh that. But if we see the glory of Christ as far outweighing anything that sin can offer us, then Jesus will always win in our hearts. Egypt will not hold its chains on us. Let's pray. And if you want to come up this morning to the altar, just ask Jesus. Jesus, I know there's areas in my life in which I've been struggling with, areas in which I feel enslaved or in bondage to certain things, to certain sinful habits. Jesus, free me. Free us, O Christ. We're encouraged by the words of Jacob as he wrestles the Lord for the blessing. God who makes the mountains melt, we ask you to wrestle us and we ask you to win. To win over our hearts all the more. That where we're tempted to just give you bits, where we're tempted to just give you pieces, we're tempted to just give you part time, when you're really calling us to full time. Jesus, free our hearts. Help us not to long for Egypt. For you call us to true freedom. Jesus, I ask that you bless each individual that's here this morning. Bless us and be with us. Guide us and direct us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We can do nothing apart from your Spirit. Give life. In Jesus' name. Amen.